first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are the other two co-hosts, and I'm grateful that they're both joining me right now. Hey, Evan. Aaron, I know it's way too late, but I feel like you should do some sort of Zoo Crew Happy New Year. Happy New Year! (laughs) (laughs) It's January 28th! (laughs) Uh, Welcome back, you guys. Evan, who is on the program? I am ringing in the new year with uh, Miles Johnson, who is a reporter at the Financial Times. He's on the investigations uh, desk, investigations team at the Financial Times. He's done a lot of great stories there. He also had a book out. uh, It's called Chasing Shadows, A True Story of Drugs, War, and the Secret World of International Crime, uh, which, as you guys can imagine, was right up my alley. Uh, It's a pretty incredible reporting feat, how he weaves all these stories together. We talk about that a lot. And then right on top of that, he had a podcast come out called uh the new narcos it's like a it's a new season of a podcast called hot money uh which the ft is doing with pushkin and that is also about an international drug cartel and arms arms dealers and money laundering and he is deep deep in these worlds that i am also very interested in so i had a great time talking to him and enjoyed both of these uh epic reporting feats Always on board for a international crime episode. Probably my number one uh, niche on this show. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, Evan, uh, both all the words in those titles and all the words in your descriptions are all of your favorite words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He basically did a Mad Libs of like uh, stuff that I would like to read. And uh, and there I was. We're brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Evan with Miles Johnson. Miles Johnson, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on. I have just uh, finished your book recently, Chasing Shadows. I also listened to the podcast, The New Narcos. And it's especially great to have you on because I feel that you and I have extremely similar interests when it comes to our reporting. <laughs> And absolutely, I, there was one place I, I neglected to write it down, but I think it was in the podcast um, where you kind of defined what your beat was. 
And I don't know if you can recapture it exactly, but I was I was entranced by how you described this beat, which I feel like is sort of my own beat, or they they are overlapping beats to the extent that I have one. So can you describe what your reporting beat is? Yeah. So I think on the podcast, I describe it as the sort of probably somewhat more eloquently or an attempt at being more eloquent than how I would normally describe it. I'd normally describe it as sort of bad guys in some form. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, people getting up to no good in various forms. Um, I think on the podcast, I describe it as the sort of intersection between uh, business and crime, uh, where that can sort of take various forms. You know, it could be organized crime, like the sort of subject of the podcast, or it could be, you know, uh, Russian Russian mercenaries or, you know, sort of, you know, spy rings, trying to smuggle stuff and um, just some of the stuff that I've been writing about uh, more recently. Yeah, and you you seem to come at it with, I mean, obviously you work at the FT, but um, with this business perspective of trying to understand how they work almost as businesses, not just from the true crime perspective of sort of what are the crimes, who's who's responsible, that sort of thing, reporting that out. It's more understanding how these networks and these businesses work. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, part of the reason for that is, you know, working at the FT, as you say, you know, it's, um, it's sort of an angle, you know, it's a sort of way in. Um, but another sort of part of it is just, you know, I'm really fascinated always by, you know, the ways in which people just have to do really boring parts of running a crime organization, you know, mm -hmm. like how you have to like pay your employees, or, you know, how you have to sort of find arcane ways of, you know, laundering your money. Um, or even just sort of like HR issues and stuff like that, like the stuff which um, doesn't really make it into films, but can kind of be fascinating in terms of the way in which you look at how an organization really works. And you can kind of apply a framework a little bit to these sorts of organizations, no matter where they are, where, you know, they face similar logistical problems. Well, I want to talk about how you got to develop that framework. Uh, and in doing so, I want to take you a little bit back because the the distance between where you started as a journalist and that type of reporting that you're doing now is it's a pretty long journey uh reporting wise so you started as a music journalist first tell me how did you get into being a music journalist at all yeah so i mean i think some people probably always have a really really good idea of what they want to do and where they want to go and you know have sort of goals and stuff like that and i mean i i really wasn't like that i i knew i really liked writing and i liked music so i was at university and I sort of started to do music reviews and stuff for the student newspaper and sort of got into it that way. And then through a various sort of um, lucky breaks, I got a sort of gig doing live reviews for The Guardian. And that was because the, the kind of reporter who was doing that at the time, he just quit and they were sort of were in a scramble and they were like, uh, you know, is there anyone there who can just do this show or something? And um, I just happened to be there. And so I did, um, yeah, quite a lot of music journalism at the start and worked for places like Dazed and Confused, which is a sort of um, fashion magazine in London mm -hmm. doing music stuff. But I kind of quickly realized that it probably wasn't going to be for me. I, I didn't actually like being a critic. You know, especially having to have the right perspective in terms of, you know, you could see something which you you actually hate, but you kind of have to appreciate it within its genre. And, um, you know, I, I, it wasn't really for me. So how I ended up um, getting to here, you know, I think that I didn't have a plan to get here. But then I basically joined the FT as a graduate trainee. Um, one of the people they, they pick like four or five people a year. And I think one of the people who they picked dropped out. 
And um, I think then they they called me up and I had no idea about finance or business um, or markets or any of this stuff. And it was 2008, so it was when Lehman Brothers was collapsing. I basically just thrown on this desk and mm. sort of just told like, all right, just make yourself useful, like cover this stuff. And um, it was a very steep learning curve. I had no idea about any of that stuff, but um, I watched other reporters around me. I was lucky enough to be surrounded by these amazing reporters who I just sort of, you know, really absorbed a lot in terms of the way they they worked. Um, people like my actual, my current boss, Paul Murphy, um, the investigations editor, he was kind of covering markets at that time. But you kind of have to learn how to deal with a lot of people who don't want to talk to you. Well, and also deal with a lot of people who do want to talk to you in the sense of like, there's a lot of um, sort of uh, people, the people who want to talk to you, I guess, in lots of uh sort of types of journalism this is the case but the people who want to talk to you and finance reporting are often not very useful hmm. uh and are sort of kind of glorified you know prs for their companies you know they're just sort of trying to get their point across but then you know that out there someone actually knows something interesting that you want to find yeah and so uh you sort of have to develop certain types of skills of trying to reach those people but also it sort of set me up for the sort of reporting i started to do later because if you can't get access you have to do i guess um you know what people would call like a sort of write around you know like you can't go through the front door often so you're starting to look for more document angles or you know understanding sort of data sets which can kind of provide information about stuff which kind of give leads to mm -hmm. stories and so um and you start to also have to look for kind of angles which link to something interesting about something which ostensibly is really boring so you know there's stuff like um securitizations and things like that you know where uh you can there's you know some wild stories come out of those those sorts of areas but um on the face of it they're super boring like mm -hmm. you know the, the story i ended up doing um when uh, a couple of years ago was about um the italian mafia Kind of laundering their money specifically the calabrian mafia the andrangheta laundering their money through financial markets you know and it was this really convoluted scheme involving like selling invoices from hospitals in the south of italy that they'd sort of like corrupted or taken over and these invoices were then packaged up into these financial products and they sort of were sent all around the world you know to sold to like south korean pension funds and you know private banks in luxembourg and that was a story which really wouldn't have even made it into like the trade press in a way you know it was just like the story of just that part of the market you know the sort of very niche part of um private securitizations of uh healthcare debt in italy no one covered that but huh. inside it was this amazing story so i sort of got those started to build on those skills from that yeah that i mean the story also it's incredible how it illustrates the way that the underworld in this case the italian mafia is using these same i mean it sounded in the end the packaging of the instruments sounded very similar to you know real estate before the 2000 financial crisis like the way they were packaging up debt they were like borrowing from that model yeah i mean no completely i mean it was it's sort of just uh you know they're just really bad incentives in that case where because uh the way the healthcare system works in italy you know if you're owed money by a hospital then it's as good as being owed money by the Italian government. You know, so it's sort of a really reliable credit. But then it sets really bad incentives up in these, you know, healthcare systems which are really corrupted. You know, in, in Calabria, 
tons of the hospitals have had to be sort of like taken over by the central government because they've been sort of taken over by the mafia and um yeah but you know it's just it was just an area which no one really paid any attention to but you have to sort of when you're given this like really you know i started off you know the ft covering stuff like credit default swaps and mm-hmm. stuff which were just really arcane and really hard to find a sort of interesting uh, angle which would appeal to a sort of broader readership um and there's a lot of dangers in doing that reporting in a sense of i think um you know i learned a lot but you can also develop some really bad habits you know because if you're only talking to you know people from big financial companies who are trying to just sort of get the name of the company into the paper it's not really uh you know you're not really talking to um sources which are giving you that much in the end of the day and also you know, it can kind of um you can learn bad habits and i think i also had to unlearn quite a lot of the stuff that i learned uh doing that in the first place did you find that you had a sort of knack for finance and financial concepts even though you hadn't studied it i wouldn't say i had like a super knack for it but i i sort of started to realize that you know there are obviously some really smart people who work in finance but there's also a lot of sort of bullshit basically and um sort of the value created for certain financial products is based on making them as unnecessarily complicated as possible and uh you know you do develop a bit of a bullshit detector in terms of um just sort of understanding you know how the basic economics of certain things work you know these sorts of companies often have like really really well stacked like public relations teams and internal prs and external prs and you know people who are really watching everything you're doing as a report if you make a mistake they'll be calling up in two seconds to your editor so it's sort of you become accustomed to coming up against these sorts of organizations um and that also helps in terms of um knowing a little bit about when you're being fed a line and i think that you might be the first ft reporter that we've had on the podcast oh, wow. which is Really, truly insane. I mean, there's a lot of great long form reporting writing coming out of the FT and the magazine and everything else. So it's shocking that you are, but it it means that you get to represent uh, for the entire FT. I'm interested <laughs> in uh, what what is the what? How would you describe like the culture of the FT? I mean, I think a lot of also a lot of you know American journalists don't know that much about the FT. Yeah. So the FT is ostensibly an international sort of business and economics publication but it has a really wide sort of global focus you know being based people sometimes think about it as a british publication but i think most people at the ft wouldn't really consider it as a british publication you know in the sense of like other british daily newspapers it sort of uh, has a very large foreign network and is really focused on international affairs so it has this amazing network of reporters and is very interested in um, everything that you know the global economy touches, but that kind of leads to this um, really amazing you know foreign reporting. And there's been a definite shift, you know, and it's always done longer form stuff. But I think you know some things have happened. You know, there's this um, just absolutely fantastic uh, editor who you know I've worked with a lot uh, called Matt Vella. He's the editor of the FT Weekend magazine. Mm-hmm. And, he is, you know, just an absolutely brilliant, sort of a dream editor. And he, um, you know, has really made me and I think a lot of other reporters really think differently about long form writing and the way in which we conceive of of stories. And I think that that's something which has been wonderful to sort of witness as mm-hmm. well. One of the best things about working there is this fantastic network. You know, if, if I, you know, I was working on a piece about a casino robbery in Mayfair um, and um, Mayfair, you know, this very, um, you know, fancy area of central London, you know, where you have all sorts of characters and um, the story sort of was 
ultimately linked to this sort of very large embezzlement of money in Ukraine uh, during the Yanukovych uh, period. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had to try and get hold of sort of uh, Ukrainian prosecutor documents. You know, I have, you know, amazing colleagues in Ukraine I can call up and they can introduce me to someone who can then, you know, get me those sorts of documents. So there's, the, the power of that network as a reporter based in London is absolutely fantastic and having sort of really generous colleagues around the world. And that that helps a lot with the sort of investigations that we do. And is it a, I mean, the the sort of, internal culture of it i mean i saw that you you got posted to spain and you got posted to rome and i think in new york for a while yeah and is it a kind of like self-starting kind of place where there's room for you to find your own niche or there's certain paths that you sort of follow that are more regimented i think it's a very um i think it's a pretty flat structure um compared to some other news organizations. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, direct sort of discussion between, you know, very senior editors and, you know, just floor level sort of reporters. And you you get to do a lot of things because of that. It's not abnormal to go from covering the bomb market to covering the Middle East or, you know, being posted to Latin America or something. Um, hmm. And so, there's this amazing ability to, yeah, if you want to, you know, you can do these foreign postings and you can um, do all sorts of things, which is really one of the best things about working there. Cause you sort of get to change, you can change your job. You can stay in the same um, organization, but you know, if you, when I moved from London to covering Italy, you know, it was basically like a completely new job. Do you remember when you, your the first story that sort of touched on the underworld side of business where you sort of went from just covering credit default swaps and hedge funds and the sort of like above board, even though it can get shady, uh, type of finance to kind of covering the other side of the uh, of the law? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it's a gradual process. You know, it's sort of been a, a slow move from sort of like uh, nice old, you know, like white collar sort of shenanigans to, you know, dangerous, violent criminals uh, over time. Um, I think, uh, you know, back in quite a while ago now, I think maybe it was 2015, um, I ended up getting involved in a story about the then richest man in China. You know, so there was this guy who was just a Chinese businessman that no one had ever heard of. And he had a listed company in Hong Kong, which was worth, you know, at the time, it wasn't a very big company, maybe it was like 200 million US dollars or something. And then this really bizarre thing happened where the value of this company just exploded, you know, so eventually it was sort of in within about six months worth something like 50 billion US dollars, or maybe even more. And this guy controlled most of the company. So he became on paper the richest man in China for a brief period of time. And um, uh, we sort of just started to look at that, you know, it was just obviously so bizarre. And the business model made most sense, you know, basically, effectively, he was uh, selling stuff to himself. But that was sort of a touched on strange sort of shenanigans going on in Hong Kong and, you know, things to do with the capital flight at the time from China. But I think uh, it was when I moved to Italy, when I really uh, started to look seriously at what would be considered, I guess, you know, transnational organized crime, you know, in terms of, you know, really sophisticated mafia groups and people involved in the global sort of arms trafficking and cocaine industries. And was that because it was it was just impossible to ignore there or because you kind of had a shift in your your interests? I think it was a bit of both. I think uh, it was an interesting, you know, it was this area where it wasn't something I was aware of 
the Andrangheta, the Calabrian organized criminal families, you know, before I came to Italy. But I, I started to um, just pay much more attention to it when I was there. And you started to see the sort of level of sophistication of these, these groups and how transnational it become. And you started to see that these, some of these, some of these characters had really reached this level of sophistication, which was similar to some of the sort of businesses that, you know, you would cover as a financial journalist. Uh, and then also you started to see how it was connected to so many other things, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of um, if you're involved in the European cocaine industry, you know, you're just inevitably having to deal with other criminal groups. You know, you have to go to Latin America and forge links with, you know, cartels and you have to, you know, deal with money launderers. And it suddenly becomes this sort of world where everything starts to touch each other. So you start to then get led outside of Italy, you know, because these groups are operating kind of uh, on an international scale. Yeah, well, that I mean, that brings us to the book. Was the Italian side of the book the first thread that you started pulling? Is that where the book reporting started? Yeah, that was sort of the genesis of it where, um, you know, I, I started to read a lot of, uh, they have these absolutely amazing, you know, prosecution sort of investigative documents in Italy where the anti-mafia mm. police there really go very very deep into these investigations and they also um eventually have to put them in front of a court so you have these investigations which can be like you know thousands and thousands of pages you know and, it, and they effectively form a sort of narrative you know of the when they're good they have all of the um you know sort of opening acts of the crime and you know, they really have these guys banged to rights because they have very invasive options as law enforcement to combat the mafia so they have a huge amount of wiretaps and interceptions and sort of you know they're planting bugs in people's houses and stuff like that and so it sort of started when i was reading through all of these documents and i just noticed this kind of quite fascinating case and there were elements to it which um kind of fell off a little bit in the investigation because there there was sort of the money laundering side was present but it wasn't eventually a lot of those characters either disappeared or weren't the main focus of the um, indictment. And so I started to then contact other people in law enforcement or people who knew people in law enforcement. And that sort of led me into this nexus of where the book sort of goes, where it sort of gets into these sort of international money laundering networks that touch lots of shady groups all at the same time. So maybe describe it as briefly as you can. I know it's difficult because there's a lot of there are a lot of stories that interweave in the book, but maybe describe how the sort of what the Italian side is and then how that kind of connects up with these other stories. Yeah. So the main character on the Italian side is a sort of uh, mid ranking mafia, Calabrian mafia boss. He's called Salvatore, Salvatore Petito. And he has sort of grown up in Calabria. So the story of the Calabrian mafia, just very, very briefly, is that, you know, when the Sicilian mafia went into decline, in the 90s, the Calabrians sort of rose up um, and sort of became the dominant crime group and also took over their position in the international drugs market. And this guy, Salvatore, he's sort of, he's not a top tier gangster. He's not one of the main Calabrian crime families, but he's watched everyone around him, you know, get big and get get very rich. And he, in the book, he effectively um, decides to embark on this very large cocaine deal. So he decides for the sort of sake and honor almost of his family and his sort of twisted worldview that you know to be really great he has to become really big time he has to um, get big in the drugs market so he risks it all he basically decides to embark on this huge for him what would be a transformative um you know transatlantic cocaine deal for sort of uh, eight tons of cocaine and to do that 
he has to make contact with this um you know very powerful colombian drugs cartel so that sort of part of the action um so i guess it's sort of like the inciting incident of the book where mm-hmm. he um he decides to do this and there's a cast of characters around him um you know he's having an affair with a ukrainian uh, woman called oksana who sort of becomes his both his sort of victim and accomplice but um in doing that drug deal, he has to pay his suppliers. And in paying his suppliers, he launders his money through a kind of network of money launderers that the DEA is investigating, the US DEA. The US DEA at the time was doing um, quite a lot of work on sort of money laundering networks in Europe because the European cocaine industry was sort of exploding at the time. And some of those money laundering networks tied into sort of uh, financing of groups like Hezbollah, you know, the Lebanese political party and militant group designated as a terrorist organization by the US. And um, the book is basically split into following Salvatore's drug deal alongside Jack Kelly, this DEA agent who is tracking these networks. And the last uh, sort of part of the book is about this... uh, character called Mustafa Badaradin, who is a Hezbollah sort of master bomb maker, had this like a uh, quite remarkable and bloody, you know, longevity, you know, 40 year career. And he is in uh, Syria at the time. And what the DEA ends up sort of discovering is the connections between the money laundering uh, in Europe, you know, for drugs traffickers such as Salvatore and how that ties into the conflict in Syria and Hezbollah's involvement in that conflict. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is the the Italian side of the story, just the reporting that you have, that's a book. Like what you described there, that is a book. And the question is, what made you decide to bring in these other stories to make a, a different type of book than a book that would just be about, you know, a big drug deal, mafia, a drug deal gone wrong, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, amazingly, the book doesn't open with any of that. It actually opens with the Beirut barracks bombing in 1983. And so what is it that caused you to want to draw all of that into the same story? Pretty much, um, I wanted to show things as far as I could as they really were, in the sense that we have this um, tendency, we, we want stories to be quite simple um up to a point but uh in the in in sort of reporting on transnational organized crime you know it's really messy and it um and all of these groups sort of interact with each other i wanted to try and capture that and um show how there's a sort of uh, you know almost like butterfly effect of these sort of networks where things happening in one part of the world can have quite large consequences in other parts of the world and um in this sort of you know international sort of shadow economy you have actors who are sort of interacting with each other but they don't necessarily really know who each other are or even care about what the others are up to Mm -hmm. you know you can have this bizarre situation where drug trafficking in europe ends up funding sort of weapons trafficking you know being fed into the syrian civil war um and so i wanted to try and capture that it is challenging you know there's a lot of um narrative threads you have to sort of uh keep going at the same time but uh i think i I made that decision to try and um show the nature of modern or effectively modern transnational organized crime (laughs) 
there are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long, just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Well, I want to talk some about the challenges. I mean, you're talking about people who do not want to be exposed for obvious reasons. In some cases, they have been exposed through the legal system. But I'm curious what your approach to trying to get far enough into these worlds to tell that story in that kind of detail. Yeah, I mean, it was um, there were multiple different challenges. So as you say, like with each um, sort of the three strands of the book, each one sort of posed different challenges, you know, so with the DEA side, I had to work pretty hard to build relationships with, you know, people in or retired from the DEA, and then, you know, spend many, many, many hours uh, talking to them, and, you know, cross referencing what they were saying with other people who were there, people from other foreign law enforcement organizations, you know, because a lot of these operations were in Europe. So they might be in France. So then, you know, they say this thing Mm -hmm. happened in France, and you want to talk to, you know, the French police who were there at the time. So just finding those people and convincing them to talk to me was tricky. With the Italian side, you know, I tried very hard to try and get sort of um, prison interviews with uh, the mafia people, uh, but they were understandably not uh, very keen on talking to me. Oh, really? Uh, sort of, why is this random <laughs> British journalist sort of taking an interest in, um, in this? And, uh, you know, but then um, the thing about these mafia families, um, they're very enduring. So even though they there are lots of criminal cases against them, because their family, you know, the Calabrian mafia is very much uh, family. It's based on blood, ties, and marriage. And so you can't just sort of sign up. You know, you have to be you know, related or married into the family. And you have these large families where it means that they're quite resilient structures. So if if the, you know, the boss is arrested, then his brother will take over or his nephew will take over or his son will take over. Um, you know, it's always men. Uh, it's, you know, it's a very, um, you know, sexist and patriarchal uh, system. Uh, but um, it means that they have this longevity where there are often multiple criminal cases over decades against the same family involving the same characters. So with the um the Petito family, you know, there were cases going back to the early 90s because they're just involved in so many crimes. Mm. So um Salvatore, you know, he's 
he's a sort of acting boss of his family, but his, the real boss is um, his cousin, Pasquale. But Pasquale is under house arrest. But Pasquale, you know, he was involved in, um, you know, some murders in the early 90s. And then there you have these, um, in Italian, you know, pentiti, like uh, people who become state witnesses. They, they effectively um, decide to collaborate with the police and they give this huge amount of testimony. So you get um, all of these overlapping cases involving all of this testimony, all of this wiretap evidence, all of these other witness statements. And you can kind of build a pretty you know, intricate picture of um, these people's lives. Because in the case of Salvatore, you know, the one place he felt safe was in his girlfriend, well, his sort of, you know, the the woman he was having an affair with, Oksana, her apartment. Mm -hmm. And inside her apartment, there was this environmental intercept there for two, three years. So just every single time he got back from work, so to speak, you know, like anyone else getting back from work, you know, he wouldn't, you know, he'd be like, you know, most people would you know, come back from the office and be like, oh God, you know, this guy is such a dick or whatever. You know, that's what he would do. He would just sort of unload <laughs> all of the, all of his stresses, you know, oh, this guy, he hasn't paid me back the money he owes me. And, you know, this guy's, you know, screwed up this thing with the Colombian cartel. And so um, you sort of get, it's almost like sort of reality TV to a certain extent. You get this just huge amount of um, material, which itself is then a challenge of sort of sifting through that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then um, with the with the strand connected to Mustafa Badaradin, um, he was eventually found guilty. Uh, well, and he he is now dead. Um, but, uh, you know, he was um, found, he wasn't found guilty because after he died, he wasn't um, on trial for that anymore. But the, the court concluded, this uh, UN tribunal concluded that he was involved in this assassination nation of Rafi Kariri, the Lebanese prime minister. Um, and in that process, a special tribunal for Lebanon, there are again, like tens of thousands of pages of um, evidence and witness testimony and stuff like that, which provided a pretty useful foundation. But then there were sort of other people to talk to about that too. So yeah, each one had its own challenges. Yeah. I mean, then there's getting the information and then there's actually reading and then there's organizing and processing the information and organizing it into a story. And can you describe for me some of your system for doing that? I mean, the cliche is like, you know, pins in a, on a wall, like you put all the faces on the wall. But I mean, I could say that actually works. Uh, there's a reason why it's cliche. <laughs> it's like a pretty good system for doing it. But did you have, did you develop your own organizational system for keeping track and and organizing this this information? I did. Um, and I mean, you know, it should be said, Trying to do something like this for your first book uh, is maybe not the smartest choice. Uh, so it was a pretty uh, steep uh, learning curve <laughs> in that regard. Um, and so at certain points, I was calling into questions sort of the wisdom of deciding to um, <laughs> do three different strands at once. But um, what I basically did was uh, eventually just I, I treated them separately. And in both in terms of the sort of narrative structure and also in terms of the organization of the reporting um, resources sort of kept them as three separate uh, stories. And then at a certain point of development, when I had what I needed or closer to what I needed, then um, I then sort of started to cut them together. But I, uh, when I tried to do it at the start with all three at the same time, it was um, it's pretty unworkable. And it was always just this challenge of finding the right structure, uh, you know, and had to get rid of a lot of stuff, you know. And um, I, I was sort of at the start of the project, I thought it was going to be, a case of struggling to find out a lot of stuff, you know, and because because of the sort of the challenges that we've talked about. But um, in certain cases, I had too much material, yeah. you know, and I had too many things. And then I was sort of uh, having to, you know, very reluctantly get rid of quite a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is a little in the weeds, but the thing that I always find, I mean, the volume of material you're talking about is that 
if you don't take notes when the first time you read it, or at least if I don't, I suddenly get overwhelmed with this idea that like, you're the only person who's ever going to read all that. And if you don't keep track of what first caught your interest, you'll lose it. It'll just be gone because you're not going to read another 50,000 pages again. Yes. And so how do you approach extracting the value from all those documents? That's a really good question. I mean, it's something which sort of terrifies me at that point. I'm always like, I might have just missed something, you know, there's, and also so much of it is excavating for these, these small details, you know, these tiny little details, which, um, you know, there's a part in the book where Oksana, you know, Salvatore's, um, girlfriend, mistress, you know, uh, however you want to describe her, you know, she, she's Ukrainian and she, she, she's never met his cousin because his cousin is in this wheelchair and under house arrest, you know, for this murder charge. And she goes back to Ukraine and she brings him this toy boat and this toy boat as a gift. And it's almost sort of paying tribute to the boss, you know, the boss in the town. And, um, and, you know, Salvatore gets back to Flan tells her, you know, uh, you know, Sal- you know, that his cousin loved the boat and put it on his windowsill and sort of, uh, effectively that, you know, her, his cousin is knows who she is and is watching her. And, you know, it's just, it's a really throwaway little detail in her own testimony, you know, where that she spent, you know, hours and hours and hours talking to Italian prosecutors, but just that sort of stuff, you know, like finding tiny details like that and also just being terrified of missing them. And yeah, frequently I would get paranoid and go over stuff again, but there's, you know, there's a point when you start to have to let go. <laughs> well, one, one thing I really liked about the book, I mean, I think a problem with some of these big transnational crime type stories when you read them is that so often the stories are told uh, as a sort of big law enforcement win, because those are the ones they want to talk about. They'll, you know, you can always find the, the agents to go out and say, like, we did this huge thing. It was amazing. But a thing I really liked about the book is that this isn't that like the main D agent spoiler for some people, but he ends up like pretty marginalized and disaffected by the end. Yes. And I'm wondering if you spotted that early on that that was going to be, if you knew that going in, that's sort of where it was going to land. Or if you, even in reporting it, you sort of thought like, oh, they're going to get a big wing here and they didn't. No, no, look, I'm really pleased you say that. Um, That was like a really important thing for me. And when I started talking to Jack, he, you know, he would say to me, this was a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we did was a failure. And I was saying, well, it's not, you know, really like that. You know, I think that there is a really interesting, for me at least, there was a really interesting element of what happens in these organizations when, um, you know, things don't necessarily work out in um, the way which people want them and the frustrations people have. And, you know, my editor on the book, you know, um, this he's a fantastic editor in London called Samir Rahim. He said to me, you know, this is a book about middle management, <laughs> really. You know, this is a book about people who work in organizations, whether it's the mafia or it's the DEA, you know, or it's a sort of um, international terrorist group who just come up against the frustrations and disappointments of what people have in their normal, you know, regular careers. And I sort of, that was something I, I was actually very interested in about the story, um, you know, on the DEA side of uh, this wasn't a glorious sort of a heroic ending where everyone um, gets arrested and, you know, everything, every, everyone wins. This is, this is something which the people who were involved in felt was a failure, but um, they sort of come to be at peace with it in the end. And, um, you know, it's, it's about people also trying to do things pushing against forces which are bigger than them in some form. So you're in the case of Jack Kelly, he's sort of feels like he's pushing against 
parts of sort of U.S. Um, national security sort of establishment and you know other 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 agencies you know in the case of salvatore he's trying to pull off this ridiculous cocaine deal and every single stage there's something annoying happens you know it's and it's not sort of mm-hmm. you know it's just kind of incompetence it's you know like people who are just screwing up or people <laughs> you know something goes wrong you know one of his um underlings you know books the wrong air flight ticket for one of the cartel members or something and so, um, yeah, that was something which really attracted me to the the story. Yeah, I, I love the parallels. I mean, this brings me to the podcast, actually, because there's a moment in the podcast where they're booking some international drug dealers, like booking flights, and they just use booking.com because everyone uses booking.com. That's like how you book a flight. Yeah, it's the, I, I love the banalities of this stuff, you know, because, you know, we, we obviously, we like to, you know, we have kind of fictionalized versions of um crime groups and stuff and you know it's obviously this glamorous and they're you know they're kind of really smart and you know but there's a lot of this stuff is kind of bumbling incompetence um as well and or just yeah quite unglamorous and i think that was something which kind of emerged as i was writing the book but it was something that i um really enjoyed bringing out mm-hmm. and in in, in in the podcast there's definitely there's 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 that too now with the podcast it's a different story, but it's clearly a story that overlaps with the book. I don't know if this could quite be the case, but I thought, well, this could have been a fourth strand in the book if you, maybe you could have uh, drawn them together. But what made you decide that this would be a separate project? So part of it was um, just the time scale. Um, they're both ostensibly about the European kind of cocaine market and the characters who sort of inhabit it. But um, the the book, Chasing Shadows, is is set pretty much from 2014 to 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the podcast, I mean, it goes back in time, um, but it's more focused on stuff that kind of happened after 2017. So it's a different cast of characters. So basically it's, it's um, for the listener, it's, uh, you know, focuses on um, this group, uh, which law enforcement in Europe and, uh, and the US started to call the super cartel, which uh, is sort of this uh, quite ridiculous name for this um, group of uh mostly European cocaine traffickers who all sort of uh, moved to Dubai around the same time and um, started to sort of uh, work together and team up on shipments and stuff like that. Um, But it sort of focuses a lot more on one part of that group, which is the Kinahan cartel, who um, are an Irish organized crime group. And yeah, it was also a challenge, you know, there because, you know, the Kinahan cartel are not unknown. You know, people have, um, you know, there's been amazing journalism written about them. There's been fantastic reporters, you know, especially in Ireland who've done stuff on them. So sort of finding a way to tell that story in a fresh, uh, fresh way was adding, adding value. And describe what your solution to that was. I think it was just to, to really step far back, you know, and um, and to say, you know, this is a sort of international phenomenon. You know, these 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 people in Dubai, they're from lots of different countries, and in their own countries, they've become notorious. So you have, um, you know, figures like Ridwan Targi and in the Netherlands, um, who's on trial, and you know, the largest criminal trial in Dutch history, and you have the Kinahans who've been sanctioned by the US government, but sort of just stepping back and seeing what actually changed to enable this to happen. You know, and the thing which I found fascinating was this sort of, it's a kind of a new model, um, which uh, has only been made possible through kind of modern technology and certain geopolitical forces where things are possible now, which weren't possible 30 years ago. So, you know, because of um, encrypted communications and, and, uh, and, you know, places like Dubai, you know, you can now run a 
pretty large and sophisticated criminal organization from a sort of you know a villa in Dubai, and you can you know move massive shipments of drugs around the world, you can move uh, money around the world, you can order murders you know on your phone. That was something which was not so easy, you know, uh, thirty years ago, and it's a sort of inversion of. Um, a lot of the stuff which we've seen before because you know lots of these big famous um criminal organizations they get their strength from being rooted in their home turf you know so like you know the the calabrian mafia you know is strong in calabria and they have an international presence but really they're dependent on controlling their home territory in some form and um you, know, you see that obviously with mexican cartels and stuff like that but this was this sort of new style of mm-hmm. kind of like almost stateless gangsters you know they're people who they they don't really they're not rooted to anywhere and it's very very difficult to combat so that was sort of the the approach was to kind of go in looking at that side of things you know not focusing solely on one country or one part of that group in the uh in the podcast i was i was particularly interested in the kind of crossover you know daniel kenahan who who ends up you know running this this irish group and gets bigger and bigger and he's based in dubai he he almost makes this crossover into sports promotion or boxing promotion in particular even he has he has the linkedin profile which i feel like in discussing crime reporting with other reporters linkedin comes up all the time the the, the (laughs) amount of times that you can find people on linkedin who are significant criminal figures trying to either appear legitimate or not even uh is astounding to me yeah no i mean i find that stuff uh you know obviously these are very dark characters but some of the things they do are pretty um you know pretty funny and and, i mean i think there's um the linkedin thing i thought i found just the idea that you would list your your skills you know sort of (laughs) as a as a criminal entrepreneur effect you know like i'm really good at negotiation and strategic (laughs) thinking and you know have recommendations from your 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 sort of criminal um cohort i found quite amusing but um yeah there's a sort of paradox there where with Daniel Kinahan, you know, he gets so close to, you know, he sees boxing as a sort of path to legitimacy, you know, a path to sort of being respected as a sort of public figure. But, um, you know, ultimately it sort of leads to his downfall by being so brazen. You know, he gets close to pulling off this huge fight, you know, between Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua. And, you know, he has, you know, Tyson Fury, one of the most famous boxers in the world, you know, on social media, calling out his name, saying, oh, yeah, Dan, Dan Kinahan, he's the guy who got this over the line. And But ultimately, the thing that he thinks is going to be his sort of uh, salvation in terms of being seen as a legitimate businessman is his downfall. I find that kind of quite fascinating kind of duality between wanting to be seen as legitimate sort of uh entrepreneur but also just being unable clearly to resist um uh being in crime but then to a certain extent we don't know because you know there's also the possibility that it's just not an option you know once you reach that level of criminality the moment you stop you become vulnerable um right but uh yeah he's clearly he's a very you know it's a very strange character that's sort of kind of what the podcast in a way is about is this sort of increasingly weird hybrid kind of characters who are multiple things at once you know they are businessmen or would appear to be sort of businessmen whilst being murderous crime bosses and you know being on social media and posing for selfies with celebrities and you know doing all of this bizarre array of things that you know it's just not that common before um and then also yeah interacting with states you know and sort of um kind of authoritarian regimes and it's a a very bizarre constellation of characters you get there so the question that i'm sure you've been asked that 
I personally don't like a- answering very much when I'm asked it, but now I'm going to ask you anyway, uh, <laughs> is about your own security. So, um, I mean, there's sort of two two sides of it. So the first one is, is there anything in either of these stories, the podcast or the book? I mean, you're talking about, especially Irish ma- mafia, you're talking about some people that are a little bit close to home. You're also reporting on uh, Iranian state-sponsored murder uh, that's happening across borders. You're interviewing for instance, a Dutch reporter who you know was living under protection because of his reporting for you know it seemed like months or years. Where do security concerns arise for you, and how do you how do you feel about those? Yeah, I think um, you know it has to be stressed that you know the people, especially in the case of the stories for the podcast, you know, in terms of um, the Kinnahans and you know the the Dutch um, end of that, you know, the people who really. The, the brave people, the people who really took the risks there were, you know, the local reporters who were covering that stuff for for years, you know, like Paul, Paul Vooks in the podcast, you know, who had to go into protection, as you say. Um, and it's, it's a lot easier for um, someone like me to come in, um, you know, after all of these guys have been locked up uh, or sanctioned, you know, that's, um, it's a less of a risky proposition than at the start when, um, you know, there really were genuine threats to, to their lives. Just in general, I think, uh, yeah, you have to be conscious and aware. Um, it would be foolish not to be. Um, but at the same time, uh, yeah, I think uh, you, it's 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 always easier for um, you know reporters who are sat in a place like you know London or you know wherever somewhere else in you know, the United States or whatever than um, the local reporters. You know, I was doing a lot of stuff on um, the Wagner Group this year. You know, Prigozhin, mm-hmm. and um, you know, people would ask me that question, and you know, I'd have you know, talks of security consultants, you know, through through work and things like that. But really the people who um, were taking the risks there were the people who were, you know, covering that stuff. At the very start when, um, you know, Prigozhin, you know, hadn't even admitted that Wagner existed yet, we had anything to do with it. You know, there were two Russian reporters who were murdered um, in Africa um, trying to investigate him. So I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just always wary of, uh, you know, reporters sat in places like me uh, sort of, talking up the danger, you know, compared to the people who, um, you know, have been on the ground at the start. I hear that. But the second part of it is, uh, is also the legal side. I mean, I feel like you even documented in that Pergozin story, how the legal system in the UK was used against Bellingcat to try to, you know, serve up libel suits that would deter reporting on Pergozin and that he had founded Wagner and all this sort of thing. Is that something that you, how, 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 aware are you of that possibility and how do you sort of avoid can you avoid particularly in the uk that uh coming up in the course of this type of reporting yeah i mean to be honest that comes up pretty much every week uh but you know there, there's there, it's it i mean that story was just absolutely mind-blowing with the um Prigozhin, um legal case you know because this is this is something where there's a lot of debate in the UK about what counts as a sort of abusive libel suit and what doesn't. And, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the lawyers will frequently say, oh, you know, we're just doing, you know, everyone deserves representation. And, you know, we're just, um, you know, they're sort of innocent until proven guilty, you know, which are reasonable things to say. Um, and there's a debate to be had about that. But with the Progozin case, you know, it was this absolutely banana situation where he was... Um, 
claiming against Elliot Higgins, the founder of Bellingcat, he was claiming he'd suffered huge emotional distress from being <laughs> described as being connected to mercenary activity. And then a year later, he was on rooftops in Ukraine holding, you know, filming videos himself with uh, automatic weapons, you know, and sort of, um, you know, giving sort of these crazy rants down the camera. Um, you know, so it was just this sort of absurd thing where um, he had just used the British legal system to sort of just lie, obviously, and then come out and then he said, ah, ha, 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 you know, in a sort of Scooby-Doo moment, he like pulls off the mask and he's like, it was me all along. I had found it, Wagner. <laughs> and um, it was just so surreal. Uh, so yeah, that, that stuff comes up a lot. That was a particularly egregious case, but, um, in a way you just, you, 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 it's part of the landscape. I mean, any, any reporter based in the UK or who has to sort of deal with UK, um, stuff, you know, will tell you, you know, it's, um, it's, it's really part of the landscape and you, you learn to, um, kind of just be prepared for it and, um, and, and, and adjust for it. It's, uh, but it is, um, you, it happens a lot. It really happens a lot. Are there things that you have to do other, I mean, obviously your reporting has to be solid, the things you would expect, but is there anything in particular that you have to be careful about that kind of like trips people up? Yeah. I mean, you, you have to think about so many things. I mean, um, you have to um, effectively think about everything you're doing from the start to the end of your reporting, you know, in terms of uh, the way you're handling you know, what would be considered um, private data. You know, we have data protection laws in in Europe and the UK where um, you can get into very serious trouble if you are seen to be um, mishandling uh, or misprocessing personal or sensitive data. So um, you have to frequently have contemporaneous accounts of your thought process of how you're processing mm. that data. You know, it sounds pretty boring, um, which it is, but I mean, it's... Um, there's really you have to sort of uh, reverse engineer what it's going to look like in the theoretical case that you will be in front of a judge in two years time, you know, um, so that could be every piece of correspondence, every note you take, even messages on your phone. You've you've obviously been deeply immersed in these worlds. I mean, you've, you've done the book and the podcast in the course of uh, a few years. So you've been deep into them. How do you view your your work in those areas when you sort of pull back from it? Do you find yourself tired of writing about these types of figures or they're always interesting to you? When you, when you look at it now, do you feel like you want to do more or you want to kind of move into a slightly different area? I think I, I'm always sort of thinking about that. I'm always thinking also like sort of critically about the work and um and i think uh you know you, you sort of you learn a lot every, every time um and i always try and find you know the story selection is so important and i always try and find um you know something which i hope has a you know it ha they have true crime elements but they have something broader going on with them you know so you know, with the story about the casino robbery in Mayfair, you know, it was sort of a story about London and this particular weird side of London that kind of ended with the Ukraine invasion, you know, sort of this, um, you know, some people call it London grad, you know, where you had this sort of constellation of oligarchs and 
and mm-hmm. you know arms dealers and all these sort of crazy characters and they were all happened to be in mayfair and you know some of them in these mayfair casinos so it was sort of about a sort of um broader story of what happened in london over the last 20 years when huge amounts of sort of um very wealthy uh foreign money came in or the story about you know the italian side of the um story in the book which i also wrote as a magazine piece you know sort of about this sort of intergenerational violence of when um you know how awful awful things can perpetuate themselves through generations and how much people's environment shapes um the you know how they grow up shapes the lives they lead uh i don't necessarily i always want to try and find something else there um and so i wouldn't want to just do you know um i don't know what you'd even call it you know sort of shoot them up uh sort of crime <laughs> crime stories um but you know I, I i at the same time yeah you can get a little bit if you you sometimes need a little bit of a break uh from the sort of violent organized crime for sure and can you turn it on and turn it off in your sort of life are you a are you a person who's sort of thinking about these things all the time or you have a sunny disposition outside of uh reporting on uh international organized crime yeah, I sometimes, I mean, I'm pretty obsessive about stories when I get really, really into them. I spend a huge amount of time sort of thinking about them and just being in my head. Um, and that can be difficult. You know, it can be difficult to turn, turn that off. Um, I think I've got better at it. But, um, you know, you always think, you know, oh, you know, there's this thing I don't have and oh, I could get this thing. And, um, you know, if I only did this, then it was only if this guy would talk to me and, um, so, you know, spend a lot of that time. And so that can be difficult to turn off from and just go back into normal life and be like, oh, hi, guys, how's it going? <laughs> um, and that, that, that I've, I've, you know, I think got a little bit better at, um, but, you know, it's, um, I, I always get a bit worried about, if you are reading about, you know, descriptions of terrible things, um, you know, just be becoming desensitized to the the true awfulness of, of um, some of the stuff, you know, it's it, the idea of this stuff becoming, you know, cartoon or, um, you know, sort of comic in some way is, is, is really um, awful. And so um, I, I, I do try and take on the gravity of the, the crimes that you're, you're reading about, but at the same time, yeah, if you read about, like, I think any, many, many reporters must have this, you know, if you, you, you can't spend your entire life thinking about that stuff, it's not healthy. Maybe it's time to return to some uh, live show reviews. <laughs> yeah, some Tegan and Sarah <laughs> live reviews might be a spot I like, really. Well, Miles, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to Miles Johnson for coming on the show. His book is called Chasing Shadows. The podcast we talked about is called Hot Money, The New Narcos. Both of them are out now everywhere. All the episodes of the podcast are out. You can get them wherever you listen to your podcasts, as they say. My co-hosts on the show are Max Hunsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor this week was Jackie Sajiko. Our show notes were by Megan Valley. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thanks for listening. We are brought to you in partnership with Vox, and we will see you next week. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. Canva. 
<laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.